we've, um, as I said earlier, we had a small section on this um, at a, seminar, a webinar a couple of times ago, and we had a lot of feedback asking us to go into much more depth. So I think if we start with you, Paul, could you explain why Brexit and enforcement is a topic that clients keep coming back to ask us about? Yeah, absolutely. And we are fielding quite a wide range of questions on this. Um, there are this particular concern that Brexit may impede or restrict ability to enforce judgments. Um, and that's a concern, well, I'm putting it bluntly, um, there's no point spending months um, litigating in the English courts if you then obtain a judgment and then can't enforce that judgment um, in, the, in the jurisdiction where the assets are based. And well, it's either can't enforce or you have to face lengthy um, enforcement proceedings. And just to put that into context, I, I had a case a few years ago that went all the way to the Supreme Court here and took about three years to do that. We then spent five years uh, in a country in the Far East actually enforcing that judgment because they had rights of appeal at every level there. So that's not really the ideal situation, but that's where all the assets were in that particular situation, and that's what we had to do. One of the things we do need to consider, though, is um, when talking about enforcement, is that you're not actually considering enforcement just at the stage of enforcement. There are three stages, really, you need to um, look at um, enforcement. Firstly, when you're actually drafting your agreements and looking at the dispute resolution clauses. Um, secondly, when you actually start the proceedings, um, that, that's obviously important. And, and thirdly, um, when you're actually seeking to enforce the judgment, because you may have different options as you know, where you can enforce that judgment, because assets may be in a number of different jurisdictions. So how do parties go about enforcing a judgment cross-border at the moment? Well, uh, thank you, Susan. Uh, that really depends on, on where I'm seeking to enforce my English judgment, or where the judgment that you're seeking to enforce in the English courts is from. And there are four broad geographical areas where this can be divided into. First, enforcement in the EU 27, Second, enforcement between EFTA states. Third, enforcement between Hague Convention states. And fourth, enforcement with the rest of the world. So first, taking that uh, enforcement between the, uh, England and the EU 27. Imagine the situation that I have a French, uh, an English judgment that I'm trying to enforce in the French courts because that's where the, the other party's assets are located. Well, in summary, during the transition period, it's business as usual. For almost all intents and purposes, as has been explained on this webinar before, uh, the UK will remain, is treated as a member state um, during, the, during the transition period. That means that the recast Brussels regulation will continue to apply. Now, the recast Brussels regulation is really quite incredible. I think it, it represents the most sophisticated multilateral system of uh, ju civil judicial cooperation in the world. And that states that a judgment given in a member state shall be enforceable in other member states without any declaration of enforceability. And what's really good about the recast Brussels regulation is it doesn't just dictate substance, can I enforce, but it also dictates the process by which you enforce. For example, if I have an English judgment and I want to enforce it in the French courts, I could go along with that judgment to the French courts and access the range of enforcement measures available there. But I did want to uh, jump in here and just put a, a quick word of caution in. Um, it, it is fantastic, the uh, Recast Brussels Regulation, but it's not quite as straightforward as you might think it is from just reading um, the, the legislation. Because uh, I recently had a, a, a Dutch judgment which we had to um, enforce um, in the UK, 
Um, we did that through a third-party debt order. And it wasn't just a case of getting that order and, and waving in front of the English courts. Um, we had to firstly get a certificate from the Dutch court. It had to be served on the, uh, the judgment debtor. Then we had to get an interim um, third-party debt order, which then froze the assets. Um, these were, um, this is money held in a bank account. And then with that, we then had to attend a, a hearing, and that hearing was um, a minimum of 28 days um, afterwards. And then if that was not opposed, which it could have been, um, you then get a final third-party debt order. So even though it's, you know, the system is fairly straightforward and we know what you have to do, it's not um, without procedural hurdles. And what about non-EU states that our clients regularly do business with, such as, for example, I don't know, Switzerland, for example? Well, um, when Louise spoke about the, different, the four different geographical areas, the, the second of those, um, and probably the closest geographically, is the EFTA states. And I'm not going to test the, the listeners as to which countries we're pointing to on, on the, uh, the map there, but the, the, the four states that relate to EFTA are Norway, Switzerland, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. And with the exception of Liechtenstein, um, they are all signatories of the Lugano Convention. And um, the Lugano Convention is based on a previous iteration of the Brussels regulation. So um, for most purposes, it's very similar to the, the situation that Louis was just mentioning with the recast Brussels regulation. So uh, essentially, a judgment given in a state bound by Lugano and enforceable in that state shall be enforced in another Lugano state. Um, just a couple of points to add to that. The UK has confirmed that it will continue to apply international agreements on enforcement. Uh, and so you'll be able to enforce, um, you asked about uh, Switzerland in particular, but you'll be able to enforce a Swiss judgment in the English courts pursuant to the Lugano Convention. And I, when I last spoke about this, I did mention, unfortunately, there is a lacuna to this because the EU is going to notify all counterparties to international agreements um, that they will treat the UK as a member state during the transition period. But the EU has no control over those um, third-party states, such as Switzerland. So there's no certainty that Switzerland, for example, um, will actually agree to that. And so if you want to enforce an English judgment in Switzerland during the transition period, you may actually still have to rely on Swiss domestic law to do so. So there could then be greater and more likely time-consuming procedural hum, um, hoops that you have to jump through. And, and another state that our clients do a lot of business uh, with is Singapore. And uh, after, after the end of the transition period, the Hague Convention could become more important. The current signatories to the Hague Convention are the EU member states, Mexico, Montenegro, and Singapore. But currently, the Hague Convention is only relevant where there is a litigant from one of these states, um, whereas the recast Brussels regulation will take priority where both parties are are currently EU in EU member states. There are limits to the uh, Hague Convention that I'll come on to later. Um, for example, it doesn't cover the process, it only covers the substance. But in principle, pursuant to the Hague Convention, a judgment given in the court of a contracting state can enforce that in another contracting state. Likewise, the point that Paul mentioned about the lacuna, there is slight uncertainty as to whether Singapore will treat the UK as a contracting state during the transition period, but that is, is quite unlikely. Um, I will also come on to later that the UK will independently accede to the Hague Convention from the 1st of January 2021, and this does not require the, the uh, consent of other contracting states. And what about if I wanted to enforce a New York judgment in the English courts? How is enforcement in that situation impacted by Brexit? 
Well, I, I think the, the short answer to that is it's not really impacted by Brexit. I mean, the rest of the world, including um, judgments from, from New York, um, unless there's a, a sort of polit um, a particular bilateral arrangement in place, um, you know, whether you can enforce that judgment there will, will just be governed by the domestic law of each country. And that, that's been the case um, but, you know, uh, before Brexit as well. In, enforcing a New York judgment here is the same situation. Um, in the UK, that's common law that it's governed by. And so if you want to enforce a New York judgment in the English court, then you have to institute fresh proceedings. That's done by way of a, a debt claim. Uh, and then that judgment from New York is used as evidence in support of that debt claim. So that piece sounds fairly straightforward, um, but how will Brexit impact this web of civil judicial cooperation after after the end of the transition period? Well, well, yes, Susan, as you allude to, here is where things get a little trickier. Brexit will only impact, firstly, Brexit will only impact how we enforce as against the EU27 and the EFTA states. And the first thing to note is that a no-deal no post the transition period is different from the no-deal that we were facing last year. And this is because there are grandfathering provisions in place that are set out in the withdrawal agreement. These grandfathering provisions set out that if proceedings are instituted prior to the end of the transition period, then the recast Brussels regulation, that really helpful regime that I explained earlier, will continue to apply. Whereas, if proceedings are instituted after the end of the transition period, then the recast Brussels regulation or Lugano do not apply. And that's, uh, that, there's a practical point that's, that's, uh, that's coming out from that. Is if you're considering litigating in the English courts and you think you might have to enforce any judgment in the EU 27, then start thinking about issuing your claim prior to the end of the transition period. So as I explained uh, earlier, where the EU 27 is, in, is involved, you can currently enforce pursuant to the recast Brussels regulation. You only have to look at one set, set of rules. After the end of the transition period, you'll have to look at three sets of rules. And I'll, I'll refer to those as the three tiers. The first of those is, does the recast Brussels regulation or Lugano apply? Well, as I've just said, the recast Brussels regulation will not apply unless proceedings are instituted prior to the end of the transition period. However, the UK has expressed a desire to reaccede independently to the Lugano Convention. Crucially, this requires the consent of all the uh, contracting states to Lugano. So Switzerland, Norway and Iceland, they've already said that they're happy that the UK will rejoin. However, the EU conspicuously has not. So therefore, uh, the first tier that I've just described won't, may, may not be uh, of help to you. The second tier is that the UK is intending to reaccede to the, in, to the Hague Convention on the 1st of January 2021. Now, currently the Hague Convention is only relevant where you're seeking to enforce in Mexico, Montenegro and Singapore. However, the UK will independently reaccede on the 1st of Jan 2021, and this doesn't require the consent of other contracting states. Given this, the Hague Convention will become uh, a lot more relevant um, when enforcing in the EU 27. However, the Hague Convention is not always the answer. There are four uh, uh, limitations to the Hague that I've set out there on the slide. First, it requires an underlying um, jurisdiction agreement. So therefore, if a, a judgment has resulted from a claim in tort, then it's not going to help. Second, uh, it doesn't apply to interim measures. So if I had a freezing order that I wanted to enforce in the French courts, for example, then Hague Convention won't apply. 
third, there are a wider set of excluded matters. And fourth, there's a timing point. Um, when was the exclusive jurisdiction agreement entered into? And just picking up the, the third tier, if the Hague Convention doesn't apply for one of those four reasons, then you look to the domestic law provisions of each state. But first, taking the, uh, that, that final uh, restriction on, on the Hague Convention, uh, there is a, uh, it, it really depends where, when your exclusive jurisdiction agreement was entered into. The UK only became a contracting state to the Hague Convention uh, uh, on the 1st of October 2015. So therefore, the Hague Convention will not apply to any agreements entered into prior to that. There is uncertainty um, uh, whether the Hague Convention will apply to agreements entered into between the 1st of October and the end of the transition period, um, which we, we can explain in a, in a subsequent seminar. Um, but where there is certainty is if an agreement is entered into after the uh, uh, independent accession to Hague, then, then it will apply. So to uh, just explain those last three slides in a bit more detail, let's, let's take an example. Imagine it's the 1st of January 2025, and I want to enforce an English judgment in the French courts. I can't look at the recast Brussels regulation. We've not acceded to the Lugano Convention, um, so they can't help me. So I then think, can, help, can the Hague Convention help me? Unfortunately, or it really depends on the timing of, as to whether my exclusive jurisdiction has a, a agreement was entered into. Um, but if it was entered into prior to the 1st of October 2015, then I'm relying on the domestic law uh, provisions for enforcement. Um, what about um, enforcement after the transition period as against the EFTA states? Well, similarly, you have to look at the, the three tiers that Louis has just um, spoken about in some, some detail. Um, one of the things that's not clear is whether or not the UK will accede to the Lugano Convention. I mean, if it does, then it will be business as usual, um, as we've already explained. Um, if it doesn't, then you have to proceed down the tier to the second tier. Um, but the Hague Convention is, isn't going to help us in this situation because the EFTA states um, aren't um, parties to that. So after the end of the transition period, um, a party is likely then to have to rely on do domestic enforcement mechanisms. So if you want to enforce an English judgment in Switzerland, um, then you'll have to uh, pursue that through um, domestic legislation. Uh, and there's little choice uh, in relation to that. So shall we move on now to some practical considerations for businesses? Well, just before, you know, when we talk about um, the practical considerations, we've put on the slide here uh, a summary of each of those uh, things we've just been talking about, both uh, during the transition period, during the grandfathering position, um, provisions that uh, Louis spoke about, and then after the, the transition period. Um, and I just wanted to just focus perhaps after the transition period on the EU27 column and the EFTA column there, because they're the ones that um, are likely to change the most. And then you'll note, obviously, the key takeaway uh, at the bottom, uh, and I hope that that's come across quite clearly in, in what we've said so far today, that it is possible to enforce an English judgment in the EU27 after Brexit. It's just there will be some procedural hurdles. Thank you. And, and Louis, let's, let's move on then to the practical considerations. Well, as, as Paul said at the start, parties need to, to uh, consider enforcement at the moment that they're drafting their dispute resolution clauses. There are therefore two key practical considerations that we need to look at. First, should I continue to choose English law as the governing law of my contract? And second, 
what jurisdiction agreement should I go for and shall I continue to choose the English court in those jurisdiction agreements? And, and luckily for us, the first of those about governing law um, is actually probably the most straightforward. Um, a choice of English law will continue to be respected by the EU27 um, and the UK um, because they remain bind, bound by the provisions of the Rome regulation. That's either directly or as transposed into English law as retained EU law at the end of the transition period. Um, but if businesses are considering their governing law clauses, it's important to have a framework when you're thinking about that. Um, and I suppose the framework is, is twofold. Um, the first thing is to consider what governing law might you have chosen absent um, Brexit considerations? And then secondly, has anything actually changed to alter your choice um, given that? Um, and you know, as, I, as I've already alluded to, the choice of um, English law um, will continue to be respected and that there are manifold benefits uh, unaffected by Brexit. And I want to just give a, a few examples and I've put some on the slide here as well. But, um, English commercial law is very business friendly. Um, the fact that contractual rights to accelerate debts and enforce security are rigorously upheld, um, even in the event of insolvency, um, is very important, especially for banks. Um, secondly, the, the English courts um, will only imply terms such as um, good faith and reasonableness into a contract in very limited circumstances. That gives a great deal of certainty because you can read into a contract exactly what it's meant to say. Uh, and stringent requirements must be met before terms will be implied and the words will be given their sort of standard business common sense. Um, linked to this, English law is very adaptable and commercial. It evolves through precedent and it adapts to developing business practices um, and that's because cases will develop over time uh, as these practices change. The precedent also gives a degree of certainty, so although it changes, you can actually look at case law to see how it's changed and understand how a judge might actually come to a decision in the future. And finally, probably one of the key points is that English is the language of international business, so it means that actually when you come before the English courts, you can understand what's going on, you can understand the statutes, and you can read um, the case law. But a word of caution, if you're looking to change the governing law of a, of a new agreement that that's based on a precedent or a preceding contract, then you really have to consider the, the, the impact of this. A trustee, for example, that's governed by uh, a law that doesn't recognise the concept of a trust is, is patently deficient. And what about the impact on jurisdiction agreement? So this is perhaps the, the question that requires particular thought uh, for businesses. Shall I change the form of my jurisdiction agreement and what court should be identified? So first, there are three types of, of jurisdiction agreement. The first is exclusive jurisdiction agreements that all parties to the contract must litigate in the court, courts specified. The second is asymmetrical jurisdiction agreements. That's where one set of parties can litigate in, in any court, but another set of parties must litigate in the courts specified. These uh, clauses are particularly common in finance documents, such as the, uh, the standard LMA facility, where lenders can litigate anywhere but borrowers had to litigate in the English courts. And then the third type of jurisdiction clause is a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause. And that's where a court is specified, but all parties have the option to litigate elsewhere. And once again, when considering um, whether to change um, the form of, of a jurisdiction clause, it's really important to apply uh, the framework that Paul has just described. First, what 
jurisdiction agreement would I choose absent of uh, Brexit considerations? And then will anything change as a result of Brexit? And given the uh, potential uh, procedural issues um, in relation to enforcement that we've just described, this second question will require further thought. The first uh, issue is you really need to consider where your uh, counterparty is domiciled and where their assets are located. And this really goes to whether there's an enforcement risk. If a party has assets all around the world where, that you can enforce against, then the enforcement risk is going to be low. Whereas if you identify uh, a counterparty that only has assets in one uh, jurisdiction and you have local law advice in that jurisdiction that enforcement could be particularly difficult, then you may wish to consider what jurisdiction agreement to go for and what is appropriate. If, for example, you would previously have had a, an English exclusive jurisdiction agreement, then you may wish to consider a jurisdiction agreement with greater flexibility, such as a, a non-exclusive agreement or an asymmetrical agreement. Or you may uh, um, consider um, uh, an option to arbitrate or an arbitration clause with the seat of arbitration in London. And that's because arbitration is unaffected by Brexit. Um, so if you have an, a, a, an exclusive jurisdiction agreement in place and you identify this uh, enforcement risk, you may also want to consider restating uh, the um, exclusive jurisdiction agreement to, um, to challenge that, that timing risk that I, I identified earlier. But ultimately, um, many of the benefits of the English courts still apply and must be balanced when considering whether to, to change your approach to your dispute resolution clauses, as I'm sure Paul will come on to. Yeah, so I mean, I'm not going to list out uh, all, all the benefits and, and sort of wave the flag so that it's the English courts um, entirely uh, on, in the session. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, just using sort of some experience of cases I've worked on, I mean, the English courts um, adopt very flexible case management procedures. Uh, I, I mean, I've had a case recently where the judges got, we had a, a judge who was assigned to us and got very involved in the case and actually took control over the 10 case management hearings that we had during um, the many years of litigation we had on that particular case. So they have a real control over um, how the cases are managed. Um, despite the fact I was talking about a very long case just now, um, you can have speedy resolution of disputes um, in the English courts. The fact that we have summary judgment and strikeout means that weak cases can be disposed of very quickly, and that's not the case in a lot of other um, uh, countries in the EU27. Um, English disclosure obligations are also very important. We try and seek here a balance between um, getting key evidence, it's the sort of level playing field um, that um, the English like to, to have, um, against the sort of, uh, that's compared against the um, disproportionate amount of um, disclosure and cost that you might get, perhaps it, um, we would say, in, in the US. So it's, it's a sort of uh, midway position um, compared with perhaps some of our um, civil um, colleagues. Um, the, one of the other key points is the legal ecosystem that um, London actually sits in. I mean, English judges here have a reputation for quality, and we've seen a number of um, English language um, courts being set up around the world, and a lot of the judges who sit on those courts are former high court judges. London is also the home of a, a very large body of world-class international law firms. There are very highly specialized um, independent barristers based here, and you've got economists and accountants and a large number of mediators, and the English court does recognize the benefits of mediation, and you can be um, ordered to actually um, stay the proceedings to actually head into a mediation or other um, 
alternative dispute resolution process. And all of those um, sort of within that legal ecosystem, they're all used to doing complex litigation, large-scale litigation. And that can actually save costs and time because people actually know what they're doing. And the, and the final one I just wanted to, to raise was the final bullet point on the slide is privilege. Um, a lot of jurisdictions around the world don't have this notion of privilege, and actually that's very important when um, you're wanting to give advice um, to your clients or protect certain documents um, which contain um, legal advice. Thank you, Paul. And I'm just going to turn back to Louis. Can you give us the key, key takeaways, summarise for us? Of course. So I think there are three key takeaways um, uh, from what we, Paul and I have just described. First, it will still be possible to enforce an English judgment in the EU27 and vice versa after Brexit. However, there could be more procedural hurdles. So in light of those hurdles, if you identify a specific enforcement risk, then you may wish to look at the wording of your dispute uh, resolution clauses. But as Paul has just described, many of the advantages of English law and the English courts are unaffected by Brexit. Thank you very much. Um, so we've got a question here that stands out, I'm, which I'm going to throw at you, Louis. <laughs> um, so the question is, I've heard that there are old bilateral agreements between the UK and certain countries which could provide alternative routes for enforcing judgments after Brexit. Do you think that these could help? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, question. And uh, that... There is a, a, certainly a school of thought that, um, absent the recast Brussels regulation, we may have to um, uh, become legal archaeologists and look for these, these very old uh, bilateral agreements that the UK um, uh, entered into years and years ago. I mean, one, I, I went to a conference recently and it was mentioned that there is a, an agreement between the UK and, and Austria from the 1910s that, that does cover civil judicial cooperation. I think I'd make um, a couple points um, as to whether these can be relied upon. First, they, they may not be suited to modern-day litigation. Um, second, and perhaps more pressingly, there is an argument that they have been superseded by um, future provisions such as the, the recast Brussels regulation. Uh, and so they, th those old agreements may be invalid or just useless. Um, and so, therefore, we really have to consider this on a case-by-case -case basis. So if there's a particularly old um, or alternative route that the, um, the person asking the question is looking for, then do, do contact us and uh, I, I'll be in touch. Always worth a try. <laughs> Thank you very much. So I think we should now draw this one to a close um, and just wrap up um, by um, a usual reminder about our next webinar, which is going to be called Brexit Here and There, the UK and EU negotiations update. And we're also talk, going to talk a bit about um, the future of data protection law, because again, data protection is something that we're finding uh, people are really keen to hear more about. So that webinar is going to be on Wednesday, the 25th of March, um, again at 3.30 UK time. And you can, as always, register via the link in the resources tab or via the, the website. Please um, stay, feel free to stay on top of the latest on um, Brexit and the negotiations by signing up for our regular bulletin um, or go to our hub which contains a collection of all of our thinking um, on the issues around um, Brexit. And as always, if you want to discuss something particular affecting your own business, feel free to contact one of us or another member of our Brexit task force or, or you can email us at um, brexit at hoganlovells.com. 
So it just remains for me to thank um, all four of my colleagues for joining me today and to thank you uh, very much for participating and we look forward to uh, the next webinar. Thank you.